0: And welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I've joined this week for Dr. Benjamin Smith, our lecturer in philosophy here at Catholic Studies Academy. And uh, today our topic is going to be George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. <laughs> it's so what, fun a to name. Say. what a name,
1: right? <laughs> I mean, gosh, I'm, I'm embarrassed I my one syllable you know uh last name i mean yeah how boring yeah. compared to that <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: yeah you need more german in
1: you <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe look big Wittgenstein right. or something like that right you yeah
0: know? germans had good names and uh good beards
1: that's right yeah yeah good beer too so, you know.
0: so, yeah uh so so anyways we're going to talk about hegel today and particularly um hegel's idea of history mm-hmm. um one that's very important uh to understanding the development of philosophical thought and even understanding uh other people's thoughts um Mm -hmm. it came after hegel that are still very influential today sure Uh, having this having the having a good understanding of this can help us and give us some insights into understanding uh different people that we'll talk about here in a second Mm Um, So, uh, before we get started, though, I want to ask all of our uh, listeners, please share this content, please hit that like button, subscribe button, it really helps us out, helps us grow the channel beyond our uh, uh, classes that we have over at Catholic Studies Academy. Uh, Dr. Smith is uh, just launching one uh, entitled The Crisis of Philosophy, and he's particularly looking at the um, uh, 20th century uh, philosophy uh, in that, but we're going to go a little bit further back. Uh, today <laughs> right to understand uh, Hegel. So Dr. Smith, uh, get us started here. Uh, maybe give us a, a good little intro to Hegel and you know maybe uh, particularly for this episode, what is uh, Hegel's idea of history? Sure, sure.
1: yeah so um, you know Hegel is um, you know so important. Uh, he's a probably the most influential um, 19th century uh, philosopher. Uh, by the end of his life, he was kind of almost like the official Prussian state philosopher, right? You know, like, I mean, literally, yeah. like, he had a, like a, like, this, the whole Prussian state mourned his death, you know, like <laughs> the universities were all like, you know, our greatest light has died, you know, I mean, he was just wow. loved, right, uh, uh, in, in Germany. Now, there were some German philosophers like uh, Schopenhauer who despised him, but, uh, but nevertheless, you know, he was, he was very highly thought of by the end of his life. If you wanted to be like a, a wealthy, successful, popular philosopher, Hegel's a good model for you, <laughs> right? Actually, Like like he did, he really got, he got it done, man. Uh, um, in a way that a lot of philosophers didn't, but, um, but he's, he's a fascinating figure and, um, probably, you know, the, one of the, there's several reasons why he's important, Mm-hmm. Um, the most obvious is um, the way he influenced subsequent thinkers, especially what were later came to be called the young Hegelians or the left wing Hegelians.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and that would include people like uh, Feuerbach, right, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote really, you know, sort of pretty damning critiques of Christianity, um, as forms of uh, self-projection, things like that, uh, and then also, uh, most importantly, Karl Marx. And one of the things you have to say about Marx, whether you, you know whatever you think about his political theory, his political economy, I, it, it's it's not even close. I mean, he is the most influential philosopher uh, of the 20th century. I mean,
0: yeah.
1: like his writings changed the world uh you know radically you know I mean Mm. empires fell people died new civilizations rose I mean based on his writings you know this is incredibly impactful we can't really understand I mean it's it's impossible to understand the world without the cold war without you know all those sorts of things you know so uh, Hegel's kind of in the background there
0: right yeah
1: and that's that's thinking about him sort of uh in terms of what's the most obvious, a second reason you know that he's really important, and this is more intellectual, is that he uh, he really almost invents the philosophy of history. This is a really interesting. I think, um, sort of, lacuna in mm-hmm. uh, the tradition uh, in traditional philosophy. You know, Aristotle and Plato. I mean, obviously, they're amazingly important and, and insightful and deep. And wise, um, you know, they didn't really think about history, you know, as history. They didn't think about the idea of when we think about history, like what is history? We could think about it as sort of the sequential record of human events or something like that, right? Sure.
0: Um,
1: They, you know, they knew that there was history. I mean, they knew that there were events in the past, and they knew some about them, uh, but they didn't sort of theorize about the nature of human history right and that starts yeah. to be interesting when you think about it, like well what is human history right um you know i like to say something like it's the record of human events um mm. as as a baseline right and sure, then you can sure, start sure, sure. but then just like anything else like in philosophy you can start to develop theories about it right like what's yep. the form of it what's the matter of it what's the purpose of it you know that kind of thing what's the cause of it um right. And uh, Hegel really does that really for the first time in a systematic way. I would say mm-hmm. for, prior to Hegel, really, it's theology that gives you a theory of history. The, the you know, the uh, in most, I would say in the West, most potently, Augustine City of God. Yeah. Right. Like, that's a powerful theological vision of the nature of history, right? The, the nature of history is about this sort of intermingling and struggle between the city of God and the city of man, Right. Uh, and that these two, you know, cities, you know, are sort of antithetical, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, you know. and, and I think and I think Christians today, I mean, like you know, just hearing you talk about that, you know, the the, the thing that comes to mind is you know, for at least for Catholics, right, salvation history, right. So we think yeah. about we think about history in terms of God's salvific plan, right?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: That's a that's a philosophy of history in a way. That's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. that we don't just. We don't just look at the the events and say, "Wasn't well, that interesting? How it all played out?" <laughs> There's, there, is there something? Is there something behind those? Is there mm-hmm. something hiding those? Is there something to exactly. with the, the the trajectory of those events, mm-hmm. or a trajectory to those events that are outside of mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, like the immediate recognition of those events happening right now? Right. Yeah. So, so it's uh, um, so yeah. So I think for the for the Christian, that kind of idea, you know, at least for today's. Christian, like that kind of idea. Yeah. It makes sense. There, there is a a philosophy of history. There is a understanding of it that in that way. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's actually kind of important, you know, um, the
1: uh, we start thinking about it, like, you know, think about things like disciplines like sociology or economics, right. Those are not historical explicitly, but very often they end up doing some history because that gives you some of the data, right. So what you're looking for, right. If you're doing the philosophy of history, is you're looking for explanations, right? Yeah. And uh for, for human behavior over time and human events over time. And you can and 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 that's sort of working as a historian, but then as a philosopher, right, you want to look at sort of the whole or the big picture of history and look for stable patterns, right? Yeah structures of history as well as uh, purposes, right? And really Hegel uh, uh, as I say, uh, is, to my mind anyways, the first one to do this in a systematic way. After Hegel, a lot of people start doing this,
0: yeah. right?
1: Yeah, yeah. He's one of the first people then that really introduces, for better or worse, uh, historical consciousness to mm-hmm. philosophy, right? That that we can't think about just consciousness abstractly. We need to think mm-hmm. about consciousness in time and place right and then we give you one uh third um and this is maybe a, a minor note but a third reason that uh Hegel is important is Hegel actually uh figures largely in a lot of views about international affairs uh mm-hmm. and foreign policy uh that might sound a little surprising but um he really does i remember back in the 90s believe it right reading a book um, by a, a political theorist, we could say, named Francis Fukuyama, and the title of it was The End of History. Mm. And it was written uh, in sort of the post-Cold War moment, right? You know, the Berlin Wall had fallen, the Soviet Union was on the way out, right? Yeah. Uh, all that sort of thing. And, you know, he was, he basically the end of history is a phrase taken from Uh, Hegel. Mm -hmm. And Fukuyama writes this. uh, He's what a lot of people would call a neoconservative. He Mm -hmm. writes this as, look, Hegel was right. We're experiencing the end of history right now. With the fall of um, the Soviet Union, we are going to enter into global democratic capitalism, as far as the eye can see. And eventually, you know, all of the all differences traditions, uh, antipathies, et cetera, will just be sort of fade away, right? Yeah. Under the force of uh, global democratic capitalism. Well, it didn't turn out that way, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and to his credit, Fukuyama uh, uh, you know, eventually admitted that was the case. But in any event, you know, a lot yeah. of people think Hegel influences the way a lot of people think about international relationships. Yeah, um, you know, in terms of how, when we think about the the relations between political communities, um, is it the case that there's a there's a purpose or a structure that we can discern sort of behind those relationships? So, anyways, those are the three reasons I think that that Hegel is interesting and important to know.
0: Very good. Yeah. And a very like even when you're talking about it there, it almost has this kind of uh, uh eschatological it does. Kind, yeah. of, uh, uh, mm. kind of uh end times kind of view view of mm. history. Mm. That yeah. we, yeah. you know, if we if we can decipher the the patterns uh of the past, we can foresee what is coming in the future.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and Marx,
0: especially, I know. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there is,
1: but there's there is an eschatological bent to Hegel too. Yeah. His his bent isn't materialistic, right? Mm -hmm. It's more idealistic. But um but he does have the idea of an end of history, right? And and he thought in his own day that he had reached it, you know. Um, and that there was just kind of some, you know, like cleaning up of the edges to do, you know. (laughs) You know, maybe it was gonna take a couple hundred years to clean up the edges it, basically the form and structure of um, the end of history had come come to be, right? Yeah, he calls it at one point the Omega point.
0: The Omega point, yeah, That's yeah. It, right? So, so maybe uh, let's let's dive into Hegel a little bit more. Um, okay. So, uh, what what kind of is his? How does how does history develop? Okay. Yeah. Um, We're not just talking about it as like a succession of, of events. Mm-hmm. How does, how does history develop? How does he understand that kind of development of history playing out? Yeah. So, you know, Hegel is one of these really
1: dense philosophers. I mean, I think he only wrote four books, but all, but the four that he wrote are really thick right, and really difficult and really tortured. Um The, um, uh, and, and, but the history is probably the clearest part. Um, uh-huh. And a lot of this is spelled out in his book, the phenomenology of spirit. With that, that, that word spirit is a translation of the word Geist. And um, it's hard to translate Geist because Geist is a broad term in German. It certainly yeah. includes mind. Um, it includes spirit, but not necessarily like spirits as if they were like metaphysical entities, right? Yeah. More yeah, yeah. like, at least initially in German, it just means something like, I think it's very similar to the way we could say the psyche, right? As a whole, right? Yeah. So you're certainly your mind, but sort of your, 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 your whole psyche, right? Uh, as a unit. Um, so uh, that's important to, to know uh, because mm-hmm. he thinks of history as essentially being um, the unfolding of Geist, right, or the story of, to put it uh, colloquially, the story of Geist realizing its own freedom, right. <laughs> That's the way I, uh, uh, to, to put it, you know. Um, yeah. To understand that, though, what that all that means, right? Probably a good place to start is just with a this observation that he makes. Um, which is that while he appreciates classical philosophy, mm-hmm. he appreciates even his modern forbear, uh, you know, forerunners. Um, he thinks the big, one of the big problems with philosophy historically has been it's sort of negligence with respect to mm-hmm. history. Right. So, yeah. you know, if you think about like people like Plato and Aristotle, most of the ancients and medievals, they're trying to get to some sort of wisdom that's based on the universal and the permanent. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, even Aristotle, right. Who, who emphasizes change and recognizes particularity. He looks at change and the particular, but he does that in a way to get out from underneath it, right. The (laughs) universal and unchanging. Right. So by looking at change and looking at the particular, he unearths the, um, universal and permanent structures of change in particularity right you get me right so uh it's even aristotle who's more sensitive to this than plato you know kind of to hegel's mind kind of misses the mark it's not that of course hegel thinks hegel's no an nominalist. yeah hegel believes in the universal and the permanent but he thinks we have to pay more attention to <clears throat> the details right we need to pay more attention to um the fact that things change and that they change, uh, in a, in a fairly, um, radical way. So he, he accepts uh, sort of the Greek achievements in philosophy. Okay. Especially, you know, the recognition that mind is what distinguishes humanity from, uh, the other animals. Right. In fact, he takes, he thinks this is extremely important, right. Uh, Uh the Greek achievement there, but, they sort of neglected the fullness of the human condition by not taking into account history and the record of radical change through history. Right. And the way in which, and this should sound very um, contemporary, the way in which history conditions consciousness. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and really that's, that's one of Hegel's major insights, right. Is he, he he says, look, um, a Persian a, a, a subject of the Persian Empire and a citizen of 19th century France would almost be completely incapable of having a discussion, <laughs> right? Even yeah. taking out the language, the language barrier, even if you could translate accurately, right? Sure. That that person of the subject, uh, the subject of the Persian Empire and the 19th century Frenchman live in such vastly different thought worlds right that it, yeah. it, they would they would just what's in terms of value meaning and purpose they would just be almost like it i don't know incomprehensible to each other D- does
0: that make sense yeah yeah almost speaking a different language entirely <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. so so is he but he, but he's not but he's not a like a kind of a a, a cultural relativist is he no
1: uh-uh, no he's not um He thinks of the great world cultures and historical epochs. Um, And when you start studying Hegel, you start saying things like that, right? You think about things as like, there was this thing called Greek civilization. Mm -hmm. And there was this thing called Persian civilization. And they were historical cultural paradigms, right? That moved through history for a certain period and then eventually go away, Right. Um, but no, he wasn't a, a, a relativist uh, in the strong sense. He yeah. thought that that he certainly introduced historical relativity as a factor and a condition of human thought. Right. But in a way that I think anybody would have to recognize is true, right? That, like I was saying, you know, uh, you know somebody who's living, uh, a Greek who's living 400 years before the birth of Christ has, no, you know, his imagination doesn't include things like um, cancer and space shuttles, right? That's just not <laughs> like he's just like I don't I have no idea what you're talking about.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You know, um, and and that that seems to me to be a fair observation, right? Like without without being a, a relativist about it, it is true that our thoughts historically conditioned, right? I mean,
0: oh yeah, absolutely. You know,
1: it, it seems to me, you know, um, you know, just think about the way we are about things like like political value ideas about equality or democracy or things like sure. that, you know? Um, the idea of monarchy seems kind of crazy to us, right? Um, whereas, you know, if you lived in 13th century France, it wasn't crazy at all. The idea of democracy sounds like, like just nuts, right? Yeah. Now, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, you have to, uh, you can be a realist, right, about knowledge and truth, and still uh, accept a certain amount of relativity with respect to historical conditioning.
0: Right, so he, so he, was, he wasn't a relativist in that way. He was just saying that uh, uh, a lot of, you know, past philosophies have kind of neglected uh, this kind of area.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and so
1: what's really important about that is if you look at the various civilizations, now one thing that's really fascinating here is the 19th century when Hegel's writing, right? Yeah. Is really the period where, History gets, for lack of a better word, scientized, right? And, yeah. and thematized, right? Like, history becomes very, like, even the phrase natural history, like, that we get from right. Darwin, and, you know, like, that's that's a 19th century thing, right? Um, and, and there's a good reason for this, is that really our, underst- our grasp of, oh, there is a history, and we know a lot of it. Really comes out of the nineteenth century, like the science. What we consider history as a scientific discipline, whereas an academic discipline, really comes Mm -hmm. from that period, right? Where you you move from almost mere chroniclers, right, to antiquarians, to finally to historians, right? That you get in the in the nineteenth century, and so uh, Hegel's like capitalizing on that historical knowledge of the time. Now, I will say this: uh, Hegel's often wrong about the. the details of history, right? Sure, <laughs> uh, but you know you want to again keep the big picture here. Um, but you know what he really thinks is interesting is that if you look at history, what you find is this these radical differences between epochs, radical changes. Um, you know, he's thinking about things like the French Revolution, right? You know, yeah. it, it's hard for us to recognize the earth shattering nature of the french revolution at its time right it mm-hmm. was shocking right uh to european people um i mean just just shocking right and then that they yeah. cut off the head of the king and the queen you know they were just like europe was just what is happening i mean imagine i mean it, it, you've got to think about like if you're a, a contemporary american 9 11 you know that it's that kind of event Right. Yeah. Is the French Revolution, right? Nothing's the same afterwards, right? And and probably the French Revolution more radically than even nine eleven, right?
0: Oh yeah. Um, absolutely.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. Why do you think so?
0: Well, I mean, not just it, I I think the 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 thing with the French Revolution was not just the the cultural upset of modern day life. Mm-hmm. I mean, the story of like, you know, the Vendée and the Catholics that lived sure. live there. I mean it's phenomenal what mm-hmm. they, they went through in that but also but but you know also more importantly kind of the the uh the the consequences of ideas
1: sure yeah
0: yeah yeah whereas 9-11 it was a historical event but we didn't all of a sudden adopt the ideas of islam
1: mm-hmm. like
0: culturally wide whereas sure. that was one of the big parts of the enlightenment was mm-hmm. not just a, a, a you know a change in societal aspects and stuff sure. But a really a a different way to think about uh, uh, in in the end almost everything.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and interestingly, you know, nine eleven is... didn't change the way that we think, right? Right. Like now, what it like? You know, some uh, critics called our subsequent actions, and and I and I, I'm, I'm sensitive to the criticism of our subsequent military actions. Sure. But um, you had called them a crusade. But what's really true is it. We very specifically were not on a crusade. Now, what yeah. would have made 9-11 an event on the same level as the French Revolution is if 9-11 had changed us, right? Yeah. Like if we had been like, oh, we're going after Islam as such, right? Yeah. Uh, as if it were like a real crusade, right? Um, That would have been, yeah. that would have made 9-11 even more important, right? Yeah, In yeah. terms of culture and history, right? As it is, it's still catastrophic especially in terms of international relations but um uh it, it is uh it didn't quite reach, reach the french revolution which affected everything right yeah, uh, yeah yeah at the deepest levels the um so anyways the um uh when you look at history in that term in those terms what he thinks you see is that geist itself that is mind is the human psyche is changing Mm-hmm. and that's a radical departure right aristotle and plato don't think about like the idea that reason changes right? right the idea that mind or consciousness changes itself is not something on their radar they they might think oh the objects change some sure but not geist itself right whereas hegel thinks if you look at history enough you see that geist is still always geist right it's not a new species but it, it itself changes from different civilizations.
0: So when, when he when he's talking about guys, he's not talking about uh, obviously not the Holy Spirit. Uh, <laughs> but, and and he's he's not necessarily talking about something that exists outside of uh, human consciousness, but he's talking more about kind of the, uh, the collective consciousness of the people that are alive at that time make mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. and those people change geist is still there and geist changes like geist doesn't have existence outside of human minds
1: yeah so i'll give you two answers how do, it, yeah this. how do yeah. we understand that <laughs> right so if both answers i'm gonna give you are uh correct with respect to Hegel, but okay. one of them is deeper than the other so i'll give you the sure super more superficial answer first so you're probably familiar with the, the term zeitgeist.
0: Yeah, yeah, spirit of the time. Yeah. Spirit of the
1: time. That's a very good way to initially think of Geist, right? Okay. And it's true of what Hegel thinks, right? So uh, this is similar to, to Kant's uh, concept of public reason. That is that there is a, a kind of collective consciousness, if you like, that we all share and are contributing to, right? Um, You know, just think about our shared experience of COVID, right? And COVID-19 and all the different, you know, ramifications and uh, that go with that. That's kind of an an example of Geist, right? Um, And so there is that sense of sort of shared consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. That um, Hegel would like to say uh, is true of Geist. It's true within the individual, Right. Right. But actually, and this is really interesting and very consistent for Hegel. I think that Hegel would say that collective consciousness is more determinative and more important than individual consciousness. Yeah. What do you think about that?
0: Uh, I would say that uh, the majority of people on Twitter would agree with you. (laughs)
1: Twitter's (laughs) such a wonderful example, though, right? Like, you know, I mean, Uh, uh, wonderful and awful. I mean, we forget that I think only like what what percent of the population is actually on Twitter.
0: Oh, it's only like 10 percent.
1: Yeah, it's like this tiny percent, but has such huge impact. Right. uh, Culturally. Um, but, you know, think about Facebook, social media, all of that. Right. Those would be excellent examples of collective consciousness. Um, yeah. You know, but I think he thinks of collective consciousness as more important because he really sees the individual as an expression of collective consciousness. Right. Yeah. In, in all its different varieties. So you could be a left wing, you know, Black Lives Matter activist, or you could be kind of a right wing libertarian. Right both of those Hegel would see as particular instantiations of the American consciousness or the American zeitgeist. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 The American zeitgeist makes it possible for Jim to be a right-wing libertarian and Jill to be a left-wing critical race theorist. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. We don't tend to think that way. We tend to think inside out. Right. 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 Uh, You know, um, but Hegel doesn't see it that way. Hegel really thinks that culture and the zeitgeist are prior to, right. Individuality and individual consciousness. Right. What do you think about that?
0: I don't, I don't fully disagree with him. Yeah. But like, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, looking at, you know, uh, history from the point of view, Mm -hmm, Um, the mind being behind all these events
1: yeah right right
0: that 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 the mind does does change with time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know like that's you know that that sounds interesting you know yeah
1: I I, one way I explain this is uh take the idea that you need to One way I explained it in my class this past semester is take the idea that you need to rebel against your family and that that's natural and healthy part of your growth and maturity, right? That's a common, it's almost an American commonplace, right? Oh, teenagers, of course, rebel, and it's kind of healthy for them to rebel, right? Yeah. Um, If you had told somebody in pre, like, (laughs) take take the vast history of of China, right? I mean, China's so old, right? But say prior to, you know, the communist revolution, you know, it's basically Taoist and Confucian. If you had told people, anybody in China, that, that they would have looked at you with complete incomprehension. They would have yeah. thought you were saying something like, it's good for me to stab myself in the eye. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's the way they would. I mean, literally, yeah. the idea that you would rebel against your ancestors, you'd rebel yeah. against your father, right? That, that, completely incomprehensible to con- sure. for- outlook or a taoist outlook right um that would that would be like stabbing yourself in the eye right there's such a deep connection with tradition and ancestry in ancient china right pre-modern china right that it really would like you think of yourself as an extension of the ancestors right? right and everything about you is an extension of your ancestors then look at America. That sounds crazy to us, right? Our ancestors are all racist and we hate them, right? You know what I mean? Like that, like, that's kind of the way we are. And we're kind of like, Oh, you know, my grandparents, you know, like your grandparents, they're silly and old and we'll be nice to them, but you know, we'll be nice to them, but we don't revere them. Right. Yeah. Um, Even people on the right, you know, uh, all the time are, you know, uh, bashing the boomers. Right. You know, and it's sort of like, (laughs) huh? Like, these, I say both, I bring those two things out to show you the different forms of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. forms of Geist, right? Even different conceptions of what it means to be conscious, right? Where yeah. you said to a Confucian, rebelling is destroying yourself, right? Yeah. yeah you yeah. have no self outside of your ancestors, right? right? For us, the self achieves itself by rebelling against the ancestors. You see how radically, deeply different that is, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and we make the—I think we, you know—in in today's, you know, a good, maybe a good a kind of analogous way to understand this is—I mean, like that's almost the exact argument we make with regards to gender. Like you're sure. against your very nature. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> there's yeah, there's something yeah. fundamentally wrong with that. But then we're like, yeah, kids just kids,
1: like, <laughs> Kid, kids, you know, are kids, kids, yeah, yeah. that's right,
0: right. yeah. So, yeah, uh, so that, that's, that's interesting. That's a, uh, that's a, yeah, again, again.
1: He's got his point here, I think, you know, yeah. right, that, that the collective consciousness here really is, has a certain priority, right? That, yeah. it, you know, over, you know, some given individual uh, named Ming or Bob, right? Ming is going to think about ancestry, right? And maturity and growth in a way that's sort of pre not predetermined but we'll say at least pre um conditioned
0: by
1: the collective consciousness of confucian china right and 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 bob is going to think about his self right and uh in a way that's preconditioned by the american right um uh zeitgeist or conscious collective consciousness um so there is that uh that that point there so what is Geist? One way of thinking about Geist is collective consciousness or zeitgeist, like we talked about. Yeah. And importantly, you know, Hegel uh, mm-hmm. thinks that it has a certain priority over individual consciousness. Now there's a deeper uh, explanation that, well, I don't want to go into too much in this episode. Maybe we'll do it in another one. Um, yeah. But there is a deeper uh, explanation of Geist that, that really is sort of like um, you, you said something like, I think you said, Something like you were skeptical that Geist existed outside of humans or individual humans. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Does it have real existence? Yeah. yeah.
1: So I think what you want to do is just flip that on its head and say, you should really be skeptical of individual existence outside of Geist. Oh, you know, okay. That is the yeah. like Geist. Uh, so what I just said earlier was kind of a cultural historical sociological explanation of the priority of geist right
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah. hegel takes that though and then extrapolates a metaphysical and epistemological uh priority of geist right
0: got it that is
1: ultimately geist is sort of you should not think of as a person um it's kind of more like an energy right or a, a field of reality and everything grows out of geist project so to speak okay the energy so, that is geist that's why I technically met in metaphysics he's an idealist right yeah yeah he's yeah. the opposite of materialist he's a metaphysical idealist he thinks that the ideal was the real and that the real is the ideal yeah which which
0: which again is interesting that somebody like Karl Marx would pick him up
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Karl
0: Marx is a is a radical materialist. That's
1: right. That's right. He's yeah, like, yeah.
0: yes, I'm going to pick up this idealist, right? Right. Uh, that's interesting. Well, All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And,
1: well, just just one mo- uh, comment about Marx along those lines is if you're studying Marxism, uh, and we've done extended episodes on it uh, on him, and I r- recommend them. One thing to really uh, latch to is he he calls what he calls the uh, material dialectic of history. Right, right, and and you know that that's taking a Hegelian turn, which is the yeah, dialectic, of
0: history, dialectic of history,
1: you know, yep. uh, and changing it, right? But also, it right, also sort of in homage to Hegel, saying, "Hey, I think you got some right, Hegel."
0: You know, yeah, yeah, you're just completely wrong about it being the I, I, <laughs> that's right, that's <laughs> right, material.
1: All yeah, right, let's so let's look,
0: look at let's look at maybe so you you have you have kind of this this Geist changing this. Um, Consciousness changing, and there's uh, he talks about kind of the the, the stages of the mind. How to how yeah. stand maybe like uh, progress or or the progression of history, sure, sure, in, in Hegel's thought? Where, a, where is it going?
1: Yeah, that's a great so that's a great term to use progression of history, right? Because Hegel really does, he's not a progressive in the political sense, right? Uh, but he uh, does think that history is progressing towards a certain end, right? A certain mm-hmm. goal, and um. So not only does so looking at history is important, because if we look at history, we learn that Geist changes. Well, is, is that you could take that in a radically relativist direction. Right? right. It just changes all the time, and there's no commensurability between the changes. Hegel doesn't go that route. Hegel thinks there is a connection, and that actually that connection is progress towards a specific goal. Right. Right. But that specific goal is the full awareness. Let me restate. That is Geist' full awareness of its own freedom, right? That yeah. is the goal of history, right? Now, what does Hegel mean by freedom? Um, there's a lot to be said there, but one initial thing I'll just say: the initial thing is that freedom is derived from our self-awareness, right? Yeah, um, self-awareness in this in the sense that we become aware of the various possibilities that are uh, available to us. Now, I think that's a helpful way of putting it because that shows you how, that shows you how um, Geist and freedom could be conditioned by historical circumstances. Sure. Right. Again, to an ancient Greek or Roman, the possibility of there being no slavery w- would have been absurd. Yeah. You know, so you, could, you have a civilization and an economy that doesn't have slaves in it. How can I can't get anything done? Yeah. Right. It, like it would work. just, yeah, they're, they're completely incomprehensible. Right. right? Uh, to them. To the modern 20, 21st century Americans, the idea of slavery seems incomprehensible in itself. Right? Yeah. And so you think about that in terms of the possibilities, mm-hmm. right? Um, that um, people of different races could live in the same country and form a civilization together, right? That right. wouldn't have been a possibility to many different cultures historically, right? Mm-hmm. Over time, our self-awareness, that is our awareness of the various possibilities that are available to me expands and expands and expands.
0: Yeah. That's
1: right? it. And so that, that awareness, of possibility is our
0: freedom. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, a good way to think about, you know, or a good way to to see how this idea of history is played out is, you know, um, I mean, Marx, Marx takes a, a kind of an economical view mm-hmm. of this, mm-hmm. um, you know, of saying, you know, things like, you know, the, the slavery model of economics, mm-hmm. a necessary step to, in this progression mm-hmm. or, you know, capitalism mm-hmm. is a very step towards uh, uh, in socialism uh, towards communism. Mm-hmm. So for Hegel, then this. Um, as we progress through history, we understand just all of the options to us, mm-hmm. and at that point, Geist is going to have this kind of uh, full realization.
1: Yes, yes. Of its Everything that is
0: before it and its possibilities. Yeah. Yes,
1: yeah. And then, and then, sort of a a Kantian rational determination of all possibilities. And <laughs> sorry, that's the mouthful, but, What? But, <laughs> right? And that will be the fullness of yeah. freedom, right? Um, yeah. So there's a lot here. Um, but yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the goal. Right. And it just, again, the easy thing to, to connect with here, at least initially, and then there's kind of a fuller version, but initially um, the um, the thing you can grab onto is the idea that self-awareness mm-hmm. and freedom are correlated.
0: Yeah. Right? yeah. 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 So it's a very anthropocentric. It's very just mm-hmm. complete. I don't want to say self-centered because it's because you know yeah it's actually not yeah it's it's weirdly not yeah yeah it's, because like you said it's it's the the, the collective yeah, yeah yeah individual. yeah that's, he's
1: very clear on this he's very uh, social and communitarian I guess in his outlook right yeah uh, um, he considers what he what he calls Anglo-Saxon individualism right to be a kind of yeah. form of immaturity. Yeah. Uh, he thinks it's not the worst thing. He th- does think it does represent a certain kind of freedom, uh, but it's an immature version of freedom compared to the proper Prussian understanding <laughs> of freedom. <laughs> right. <Dutch> uh, <laughs> that's right, a that's German. Right. So uh, I know we've gone long here, but I want to just kind of run through a couple yeah. of historical uh, what Hegel gives as uh, so a historical account uh, uh, that supports this hypothesis about freedom, right? Sure. His theory of freedom. And I'm just going to hit some of the high points here. Uh, Now, again, Hegel, you might dispute, and plenty of historians would dispute, his account of history, right? But, you know, for his time, this was, you know, a, a decent account, right? And again, you're looking at history as not just a sequence of events, but the meaning of that sequence of events, right? Yeah. The purpose of that sequence of events. And so he sees sort of the, say, the the clash between Persia, the Persian Empire, and the Greek city-states, right, Mm -hmm. as being, like, not just a military-economic clash. Certainly it was that, right? Right. But more importantly, a spiritual and cultural contest, right? Interesting, yeah. Because what you have there, he thinks, are two ideas of freedom uh the per- the persian view of freedom is uh there's god and then there's god on earth who is the persian emperor and he's free and everybody else is free by obeying him yeah right their freedom exists in obedience to the persian emperor interesting right uh, yeah because by obeying him who is the only one who is free Right? Cause he's almost an embodiment I mean, what is God, the representative yeah. of God um, that uh, they're able to be free by obedience to the one free man. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that's not the Greek idea. Right. right. The Greeks are like, you know, hell no. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're not taking over us Athenians, us Corinthians, us Spartans, Right, us Thebans. Right, Do, yeah. you follow me? So oh, yeah. one thing that's uh, so there's a a sense of a kind of plural, sort of a sort of pluralism. Right, kind of a civic pluralism in ancient Greece, where right. we recognize that there are different peoples within Greece. Right, different city states, uh, and they share a culture. Right. Mm-hmm. But they also
0: are very different, right? right? right. And this is, and, and for our listeners, this is what Hegel when Hegel's talking about the historical dialectical.
1: That's the, right,
0: yeah. That there's always going to be these uh, kind of two opposing forces, and mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. out of this fight uh, comes real progression. Out of this, and and again, you see that you this idea of kind of those those two. Competing or those two kind of fighting uh, factions, Mm -hmm. eclectic. You you see this in 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 that that big idea. You see in a lot of people that come after Hegel. That's right. That's right. Of course, one of them. So so when we're looking when you know when uh, when we're going through these historical events there's always going to be these this, this clash right that's right clash yeah there's always a clash right until there's no until the end of history right right um, right
1: <laughs> and, and and it tangles by the necessary clash and he actually thinks of each stage as necessary so yeah 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 it, it's kind of like you know there are di- there are peaks and valleys in history but he sees it kind of going in a trajectory right sure it's all going towards this end they're all necessary steps, right? Um, yeah. So the Persian empire had to exist for the Greeks to realize in themselves how much they were free, independent communities, right? Mm-hmm. The Greeks wouldn't have been as free as they were if it wasn't for the pressure of imperial Persia, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Isn't that interesting, right? So um, now I've, I've said Greek communities, uh, the freedom of the communities. Hegel and a lot of Germans at this time think of um, Greece as a place of almost idyllic harmony, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is the Greek city-states in themselves, not between themselves, but in themselves.
0: Right.
1: Uh, this is overstated to be sure. But there's a little kernel of truth that I, keep say, I kept saying things like, we Thebans and we Corinthians are free to ourselves, right? To Hegel's mind, there wasn't an individual consciousness of freedom. Mm -hmm. There was a community group uh, consciousness of freedom. We Athenians are not going to be told what to do by you Persians. Yeah, right. We we Texans. (laughs) 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 But but there's no individual consciousness there. He thought, right? Yeah. That is, people thought of themselves as an extension of the community, right? And so. They were in harmony with the community. They did what they wanted, but what they wanted was the same thing that the community wanted.
0: Do you follow follow that
1: idea? So um, they were free in that sense, but not free in the radical sense of recognizing that you could rebel against your community, right? Do you you see the difference, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a huge difference, yeah. And and so there's a kind of freedom there. and, and, And again, Hegel respects it, but he thinks it's inadequate because right. it doesn't give a full recognition to self-awareness and freedom. Yeah. We'll go on for a little while. I don't want to get into all the details because I know we're going to, sure. learn. Um, you know, one of the places that he thinks is very, one of the epochs of history is very important is Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks that the special and necessary stage of Christianity or, you know, form of consciousness, right. The Christianity introduces, and this is so fascinating is um the uh dignity uh the dignity and full freedom of the individual right Mm -hmm. comes forward in christianity because we're all made in the image and likeness of god and because um god became man right so that the, the creator of the universe becomes one right with humanity which, which shows uh, humans that we are um, we are connected with, even though we're changing and, and all that, we're connected with the divine and the highest, right? So that the, the individual all of a sudden becomes, in that case, he thinks Christianity begins really individual consciousness, right? Individual awareness, individual yeah. self-valuing, right? Because... Uh, God loves us, yeah. And we're made in His image. The individual, as the individual, right, is important, is valuable, and is something to be self-aware of. Do, do you follow that?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. And and even in like you said, like kind of that, or are, are, that, that was you know, that was a fairly new idea sure yeah made in the image and likeness of god that's a radically christian idea yeah, that's right, mean, right. you read all you read all the other creation accounts of you yeah. know human gods and stuff we were not. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. That's so- right.
1: we're lucky if the gods don't you know do whatever yeah. they want to us um, right exactly yeah so he sees christianity is very important in the growth of consciousness and freedom the problem one of the problems though that happened the antithesis of early Christianity uh, in his view is Roman Catholicism. Uh, <laughs> right. Because in his view, so right, you have this beautiful birth of individual awareness and consciousness and self-valuing sure. and hate in Christianity that then is Romanized, right? Yeah. And what does Rome stand for? Rome stands for law and stands yeah. for order, right? Uh and hierarchy. Hierarchy, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, Rome, <laughs> as, the, as an imperial entity. So then if Rome is an imperial entity then takes over Christianity, what does it do to Christianity? It makes it law, legalistic. It makes it yep. ordered. It makes it hierarchical, right? Yeah. So, uh, so there's something within ca- Catholicism that's good, right? This original ideas of Christianity covered over, right, by Roman Catholicism. Now, yeah. the solution to that, of course, is that this is very German, right, is Martin Luther, right in <laughs> the protestant reformation right martin luther yeah. to him is like one of the epical figures in the world yeah. stage not because he's dogmatically lutheran he doesn't really care too much about the details of lutheranism right uh but because but he's
0: getting rid of rome yeah. he's getting
1: rid of rome and setting geist free and he yeah. thinks that, that what what the protestant reformation did for us is it um helped uh, it elevated the conscience of the individual believer, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and
1: by doing so, advanced freedom, right? So you kind of get yeah. this way of, of thinking here. Does that make some? Again, obviously, yeah, we yeah, yeah. accept the, the the underlying theses, but it's an interesting account.
0: Sure, sure. And, and for for Hegel, then each of these, whether we're talking about like you said, uh, Greece and Rome, or Roman Catholicism and and the Reformation and things like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of necessary, kind of steps as we we progress towards this kind of uh, uh, utopian idea. <laughs> That's right. Uh, of That's freedom, freedom.
1: That's right. You know, of, right.
0: of geist experience. Now, how does the individual, though? You know, maybe to maybe to close. How does the individual then live in this? Mm. Hegel see the, the individual living in this in this uh, ultimate geist at the end of human history. So yeah, this will take a few minutes to explain,
1: but uh, I think I can yeah. do it concisely. The end of his of history, right? He thinks that they've basically reached in um, his time in Prussia. Yeah, now that's sort of shocking because Prussia at that time, um, I mean, the crown prince of Prussia, the last king of Prussia, who then like became the first German emperor. Um, like gave Hegel a medal right like like, <laughs> it, like, it, like they love Hegel right um but the you know Prussia at that time had uh official censorship that was state mm-hmm. policy uh they had a kind of assembly that met every, every once in a while but they were basically advisory mm-hmm. the state was basically run by bureaucrats and by aristocrats right and there <laughs> was a monarchy and it was an officially Lutheran state were sort of like this is this is the, the fullness of freedom? And Hegel would say, yes, this is my friend. And <laughs> um, the, so it's one thing at the end of history to realize as things go by, as the Protestant Reformation does its work, um, to realize your self-awareness. Sure. Right. And the fullness of possibilities for yourself and for all of humanity. Right? Yeah. That's what he calls that. Once you go for all of your possibilities and for all of humanity, not just yourself, all of humanity. That's yeah. that is the subjective, um, full awareness of, geist freedom,
0: right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, interestingly, though, he doesn't think that that is. He thinks that that's incomplete and inadequate until that freedom. Is fully realized in our external circumstances.
0: Uh, Okay, it's
1: inadequate, right? And that's why the end of history has to be a political arrangement, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, because it needs to be uh, realized now, you could say, "Hmm, well, that means what we need then is kind of something close to anarchy or some sort of libertarian, you know, sort of uh, you know, sure night watchman kind of um, uh, government, (laughs) right? You know, just bare minimum, right?" Yeah. Uh, and we'll have, you know, no regulation on prostitution or drugs or anything like that. Cause those are just the possibilities. Right. Um, and he would say that is what you're expressing is an immature, as I said earlier, Anglo-Saxon idea of freedom, yeah. which is the freedom, uh, from constraint. Right. Yeah. You know, the, um, uh, I can, I, I can do whatever I want to do and Hegel. And this is a part where he's right. You know, wants to say that's not actually freedom. And the reason he says that is because our desires are not necessarily free, right? Mm. They just happen to us. They could That could be physiological, but it could also be cultural. It sure. could also be manipulated by outside forces. So that if you're acting on your desires, really what's in charge then are the things that elicit the um, your desire, right? The external yeah. objects. You following the logic here, right? So, yeah. you know, think about... Um, Let's say that you're you're subject to a marketing campaign that's very effective, and over time it causes in you this weird desire, right, yeah. to go on vacation to X, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Your life is just going to be incomplete without doing so, right? And so you 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 get out that credit card and you pay for that super fancy vacation, right? And of course you you know six months later you regret it, right? Were you free? Were you really being free? When you capitulated to that marketing campaign to go for an expensive fancy vacation that you didn't need. And Hegel would say, no, you weren't really free, right? Yeah. Yeah, You did your, you followed your desires, but you were manipulated into it, right? Yeah. Um, You weren't being truly free. To be truly free, he thinks, is to act on a rational principle, right? And by rational, he means universally and consistently applicable, a la Kant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so not to get in the weeds too much here, but he thinks you have to to be really free. You have to follow the categorical imperative. That is that you should only do those things that uh, you would universally will all to do. But for you to do that individually <laughs> is not enough because it doesn't change the circumstances of your life. Right. What it has to be is you have to have a government that acts on that and enforces that into all of society. Yeah. Right so that all of the institutions then are changed to follow the categorical
0: imperative. Now I'm simplifying, but d- does sure. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And you've, uh, you've definitely taken us into the wheat. <laughs> <laughs> despite your, despite your uh, uh...
1: efforts not to do so. Yeah. yeah. You, let me give you one, answer. one. <laughs> uh, th- this worked well with my students, but, um, yeah, let me give you a really relevant contemporary example. Sure. Between, uh, Anglo, using Hegel's term, Anglo-Saxon freedom, and proper Prussian freedom. Right. Think about the way that people responded to mask and vaccine mandates. Read COVID nineteen. Right. Yeah. To Hegel's mind, this would be a perfect example, right, of mature versus immature freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. The you know one one group is like. To hell with you! You're not going to tell me what I put on my face. Yeah, Yeah. right. That's individualistic Anglo-Saxon freedom and and immature,
0: immature freedom. Yeah,
1: that's right. Right, because you can't categorically uh, uh, universalize it, right? Um, Yeah, and uh, I think Hegel would say that. Whereas this is weird: forcing people to wear a mask. Right now, it'd be better, of course, if you if the state says wear a mask, Jason. You say. Yes, sir, I'm happy to do so, right? That would be your true freedom because you're in harmony with the state, right? Mm -hmm. You're not in rebellion because you want to follow the universal categorical imperative. (laughs) Everyone's giving you the universal categorical imperative and you're all in harmony, right? But so it's not an oppression of your freedom. It's an exercise of your freedom to obey the state in its uh, uh, mandates there. Now, if you happen to be one of these rebellious people, you know, uh, in Hegel's view, then yeah, we're going to have to force you. Right, and that's too yeah. bad. That's because you're immature, right? Sorry. Yeah. um But that that actually the uh, the voluntarily obeying the mask mandates would be a good example, I think, of
0: Hegelian freedom. Yeah, that's a great. it's a uh, <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> wrap up our conversation. Of <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna depart from Hegel on this. <laughs> But it is—it is kind of
1: fascinating, there, right?
0: Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, and I, and you know, I think there's, you know, there are, there are, you know, some things that are, that are attractive in Hegel's view, right? So, sure. like the, the the relational view of the human person, right? That's, mm-hmm. you know, especially in America where, you know, that can get, you know, uh, overshadowed by, you know, strict individualism or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that. Mm-hmm. like Hegel does take into account, you know, that we don't exist in vacuums and things like That's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the importance of community and relationships and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that we, we do understand ourselves in, in relationships and those are important. Um, Yeah. But but, <laughs> but, but again, you know, like there's so, there's so much of this that, you know, we could go on probably for another podcast talking about, you know, yeah. like Hegel with regard to, you know, um, God and atheism and, you know, is he theistic and things mm-hmm. like that. Because that's an interesting uh, topic, I think. Um, but um, but just kind of you know that 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 understanding of the, I mean, there's no there's no reference to the good, the true, the people. There's no reference to virtue, um, you know, unless unless I guess you're saying you know obedience uh, obedience to the to to the state in some sense like that, virtuous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think
1: that's kind of what he thinks. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a sense of right. He has one of his books is called "The Philosophy of Right," uh, yeah, and in that he lays out basically a very thoroughgoing account account of Kantian slash Hegelian ethics and political philosophy.
0: Right, right, which places so much emphasis on just kind of moral duty, the mm-hmm. post yep. of doing doing what is authentically good, and like,
1: yeah, yeah, that Aristotelian, yeah.
0: Pre- you know,
1: sort of idea uh, of the good is, is out.
0: Yeah, we've left that behind. Yeah,
1: we've. Yeah. It was, it was yeah, that's right. It was necessary <laughs> to the day, okay.
0: Uh But yeah. now we've, we've gone beyond that. Yeah. All right, Dr. Smith, that's very interesting. You've uh, uh, given us a lot to think about. And, and I hope our listeners can see kind of some of the ideas that we talked about within Hegel. You can see how those are, are being uh, played out today, uh, or even just hints of them, because they, Hegel, they in Hegel's view of history in this sense really did shape much of 20th century uh, uh, thought on a lot of things, not just politics, but when you look at Marx economics um, and you know meta- metaphysics, if you can even call it a metaphysics even, again. Um, so, uh, there's a, there's a lot there to think about, a lot there to consider. Uh, and so I want to thank all our listeners for joining us today. Uh, check out all, all of our content over at uh, Catholic Studies Academy. Dot .com and until next time god bless